بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد سيد الأولين والآخرين وعلى آله وصحبته أجمعين وبشرحي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل أقرة من لساني يفقه قوري الحمد لله so we are reading now from this book عقيدة الأوام I know a lot of you sent the email but the text is just not ready so if you didn't get an email like don't worry just the text isn't isn't ready yet so for those of you who want the actual text just send me an email at uh oh man this is being recorded at uh <laughs> at uh hey what's your email i'm just joking <laughs> I send it to uh suhaib web at nyu.edu there you go suhaib web at nyu.edu that's my work email don't hit me up with some spam and stuff man the fire conference or something or whatever festival I ain't about it so we praise Allah, we send peace and blessings upon our beloved messenger, S-U-H-A-I-B-W-E-B-B at NYU dot edu. And once it's ready, like I'll send it to you, inshallah. But it's still still some things like I'm not comfortable with it where it's at right now. So we said that this book is a primer on a, a position on Islamic theology. We noticed that we noted before that historically, if we were to like make Islamic theology like a linear, like a line, you would find on two extremes, like literalistic and rationalistic. And then as you Venn diagram it and you came in the middle, you'd find what's kind of like considered orthodoxy and where there's overlap in the rationalist school and a school which uses or employs literalism. Today, you find that amongst like the Salafi kind of crowd is going to be more towards on the literal side. And then the Sufi traditional methab people tend to be on the uh, rationalism school, not rationalistic. On the, on the two extremes, you had like groups that were way out there, and we can maybe talk about them in the future. Um, both of these groups that are in the middle, they, they kind of fight over things now that have been accentuated by political entities to keep people divided. But at the same time, we're responsible for our own behavior. Like we should be smart enough to know when we're getting played. And we should be smart enough to have priorities. Um, but they, they, they both agree in preserving Allah's transcendency. Transcendence, excuse me. But at times they differ on how they get there. So it's like I want to go to D.C. and I took an Uber. You want to go to D.C. and you want to take a Peter Pan. We both ended up in D.C. Just how do we get there? So, اختلاف in what's called al-wasail, yani arguing in means that are used to preserve a truth, is kind of like a waste of time. And most of those issues fall under acceptable ishtihadat, like scholarly differences. So, the book that we're studying, like last year, is from the rationalism school. The Imam of the School of Rationalism is an Imam, of course, Sayyidina Muhammad, right? But Imam al-Baqilani comes in like 3rd, 2nd, 3rd century. Imam al-Haramain, these were people who kind of led this effort. Um, some people said Sayyidina Shafi'i, radiallahu anhu. But the leader of this school, really two people. And although they differed with each other, Imam al-Ghazali and Imam al-Razi. On the other side, we're also Muslim, alhamdulillah. We shouldn't like get into this fighting and destroying each other. You tend to have a, a good percentage of people who follow the Hanbali school. And they were more interested in preserving the literal components of a text. And the Imam of that school, interestingly enough, is Imam Malik. Even though the Malikis now are here. And then of course, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, uh, radiallahu anhu. And then people like Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, great historical figures. You shouldn't allow yourself to get caught up in the simplistic notions of people around personalities. That's ridiculous, man. Like, inshallah, kuluna ala khayr. Even though we might not agree with someone or whatever, 
we should like have respect for people. I remember like Azhar where I studied, Azhar is like the rationalist capital, right? Rationalism capital. So I went to the head of theology in Azhar, an old man, and I said to him like, people say these really bad things about Ibn Taymiyyah. Is that true? And he said to me, quote, in Masjid Azhar, he said to me, it would appear that's what he meant, but that's not what he meant. And we shouldn't say those kind of things about him. Even though he doesn't agree with him. And he comes from a different madhab and a different place. Like he has like enough academic maturity to appreciate differences. Doesn't mean also that I can't vehemently hold to something being the truth. I can, but I don't have to be like a jerk about it. I don't have to be harmful. So the school that, that like this is largely coming out of is a, uh, uh, a school which employs, as you'll see, the use of universals, the use of scripture and logic, because this school, one of its trademarks is that it was the school of the people. Like it, it was ingrained in society. It dealt with non-Muslims. It engaged non-Muslims early on in Baghdad, in Cairo, in Damascus, Andalus, in Morocco. And, and although now people tend to frame Salafism as being like really intolerant, there was a time when these guys were intolerant. The great-grandson of Salahuddin Ayyubi had the Hanabilas, the Hanbalis, uh, Mimbar broken and burned in Damascus because he was like really, really tight with the school. In Morocco, in the time of uh, Al-Murabitun, like if you didn't follow this school, like you would be in serious trouble. So intolerance has never been monopolized by one group or another. Immaturity, right, and lack of tolerance has really undone our potential as a community. So I just want us to understand and appreciate, like although now historically people tend to worry about Salafism, you know, that's not necessarily fair and just. Historically, all these groups have had their successful moments of absolute ignorance and stupidity and lack of tolerance. So alhamdulillah, this book was written by someone we talked about him before, Al-Marzuqi Al-Maliki, he's around 200 years ago in Egypt. His concerns public education. How do we teach people about God? How do we teach people to think about God? So he writes this book after seeing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in his dream. Uh, and the Prophet, of course, reciting this poem. It's a poem to him, and then he has it written down. It becomes a text which really introduces Egypt as one of the first countries to like modernize in the Arab world. So it tries to introduce this as like a public text. So it's like an important trial. And that's why the name of the book is Aqidatul Awam, the Masses Creed, the Creed for Everybody. Uh, so, inshallah, we're going to go through it. Uh, inshallah, hopefully, we'll finish this semester. It's, it's a nice text, um, and it will give people. Every single verse of poetry in here is supported by a verse of Qur'an. So like every point that he makes, you'll find a verse of Qur'an to support it, inshaAllah ta'ala. So we'll begin, he says, أَبْدَأُ بِبِسْمِ اللَّهِ وَالرَّحْمَنِ وَبِالرَّحِيمِ دَائِمِ الْإِحْسَانِ He begins, he says, I start with the name of God, the most merciful, the gracious, whose excellence is, is a constant, uh, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we talked about like, why would he do that? Even though he's well accomplished, he still starts with Allah because professional success should never blind us from feeling reliant on a greater power. We gave examples like when the Prophet would open his prayer, like when the Prophet would pray, even though he's the best person to ever pray, he would always start by turning to Allah. Also, he said that whenever Prophet Muhammad was confused about something, he would make istikhara even though he is the Prophet. So he, there's this reliance uh, on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why some scholars used to say, Oh Allah, never, ma never make me poor, meaning I feel I don't need you. But always keep me rich, meaning like I always need you. So poverty is like absolute autonomy, spiritually is synonymous with poverty. Reliance on Allah is synonymous with like feeling satisfied in our hearts. Then after that, he, 
he opens and then he, he continues his poem after starting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, qadim al-awwali al-akhiri al-baqi bila tahawwali. Then he begins by praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, sending alhamdulillah. The Prophet said, alhamdulillah tamla mizan You know, when you say alhamdulillah, it fills the scales for you. And he recognizes Allah by some of his names, the one who has no beginning, the one who has no ending, the one that will last forever. We said this was a style of scholars early on in the early days. They would like give you hints about what they're writing about in their introduction. So, mashallah, our scholars had bars, alhamdulillah. So like, yushiru ila al-mawdu' fi muqaddimat al-kitab. So like he's like alluding to what he's going to talk about in the book in his introduction. As you mentioned earlier about Sayyidina Ibn Hisham in his book, right? This is called Barat Isti'lal. The idea of showing you what I'm going to talk about. So like if I was going to talk about basketball, I'd be like, all praise be to Allah who like, by His grace, we're going to be Duncan in Jannah. Like I would allude to like what the subject is. And gave us mad air to fly above sins. You know, you'd like use terms that are used in different ways, two ways. And after praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and recognizing uh, Allah's names, he says, Thumma salatu wa salam wa sarmada. Then constant prayers and peace upon Ala Nabi Khairi man qad wahada, upon the Messenger of Allah, the best to single out Allah for worship. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man tabi' sabila deen al haqqi ghayra mubtadi'. Then he said, peace and blessings upon the Prophet وسلم, upon the Al of Sayyidina Muhammad وسلم, upon the Sahaba, and then whoever follows the path of truth and is not an innovator. When he says is not an innovator, as though he's trying to say the subject matter of this book is really important. The subject matter of this book is, book is orthodoxy and foundations. Um, sometimes we find people accusing people of bid'ah. You know, like this is a bid'ah. Bid'ah means an innovation. We know historically that there were two madhabs when it came to bid'ah. First is the madhab, the, the opinion, if you will, two opinions. The first is the opinion that any type of innovation in religion is rejected. Because the Prophet said, Kulu bid'atin dalala. Like every innovation is rejected. And the, the head of that school was Imam Malik. Radiallahu anhu. And after Imam Malik, it's interesting, the Hanabila followed him. A large percentage of the Hanbalis followed him. The other opinion, um, which is the majority of Sunni scholars, is that Bida is two types. Bida, which has some type of basis in sacred texts. And they call this Bida Mahmuda or Bida Hasana. And the other type is a Bida, an innovation, which has no textual precedent. The word bada'a means to bring something from nothing. That's why one of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is what? Al-Badi'a. Al-Khaliq, yani. Al-Badi'a, yani khalaqa min al-Adam. The one that caused something without a cause. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those schools both have proof from hadith because now like, it's like really simplistic and we find it's very important not to be an aggravator or someone who continues to throw gas on the fire of the differences of the Muslims. We need people to love unity. If people love unity the way that of disunity, the world will be a very different place, mashallah. Like, I get it. We can sit around and talk about this all day long, but I want to know Ocasio Ortiz today, her position on the new green deal. Like, that's what I want to talk about. Like, what kind of theology do you have around that? Or we're going to sit around and continue to rehash problematic issues that have never been solved. So instead of trying to solve them, let's talk about how we can live together respectfully, without harming each other, dividing each other, and weakening each other. So for bid'ah, there were two, there have been through Sunni Islam, two major schools. One is like every innovation is wrong. That was the minority, and at the head of that was Imam Malik, radiallahu anhu. The majority, which follows Sayyidina Shafi'i, they said that there's two types of bid'ah, as Imam Shafi is quoted by Imam Zahabi, it's a great scholar in his book Sirah Ala Manubala. Imam Shafi said there's like bid'ah which has a foundation, a precedent, 
and that's something commendable, then there's innovation which doesn't, and that's not commendable. And both of these groups have evidences. So, for example, the school of Sayyidina Malik, not his methab, but his early opinion, and those who followed him in this, wherein the Prophet said, you know, like every innovation is going to take you astray. So, kullu means like khalas, any bid'ah. Imam Shafi says, that hadith, and the people who follow Sayyidina Shafi, the majority, they said, no, that means kullu bid'ah sayyayani. Like every bad bid'ah. But if we look at the Sahaba, they said we find people who did things in worship which the Quran and the Prophet didn't command them to do. And then later on the Prophet said, okay, it's okay. For example, when the Prophet came from Ruku' in Salah, he says, Samia Allah Hamida. And then that man behind him yelled, What? Rabbana hamdan right? Prophet comes from prayer, he says, Indeed, Allah has heard who has praised him. And then that Bedouin was really excited and he said, you know, our Lord be praised, a blessed praise, an abundant praise. And after Salah, the Prophet said like, who said that? And then, this is me, and he said, you know, I saw the angels fighting to write down what you said. He didn't say to him like, why did you make bid'ah? Why did you say something that you're, you haven't been taught? When he came to, uh, we mentioned this narration a few days ago, Sayyidina Bilal, and he said to him, like, why do I hear your footsteps in Jannah? And then Sayyidina Bilal, he said, you know, whenever I make wudu, I just pray, ma katab Allah, whatever Allah has written, I pray. The Prophet didn't say to him, like, this is an innovation, this is bid'ah, nobody told you to do that. So you see, Sayyidina Shafi'i has his evidences, Sayyidina Madik has his evidences, and then thousands of scholars went one way or the other, and people. And also the hadith, man sanna sunnah hasanatan, whoever brings a good sunnah will be rewarded for it, and also those who follow them, wa man sunnah sanna sunnah sayyatan, whoever starts an evil sunnah, they meant is like something that doesn't have a precedent. So the point I'm trying to make is, chill out, man. Somebody wants to follow that opinion, there is support for that historically. Someone wants to follow that opinion, there's his support for that. But what we agree on is that we're not allowed to fight on this issue, which we see people wasting a lot of time and energy doing. So if we go with the second school or the first school, regardless, we say that someone is not called a person of bid'ah in the following situations. Number one, they follow the opinion of recognized scholarship. So maybe I don't for example, read the Qur'an for people who died. Maybe somebody doesn't do that. But then there were Sahaba who did. So we don't say to that person, this is bid'ah. We say, this is amrul mukhtalafun fi. This is a difference of opinion. There's a difference between ikhtilaf and bid'ah. Ikhtilaf means there is like some evidences, but we differ. Those of you who attended usul al-fiqh yesterday, right? how we use the evidences. Sometimes how we use the evidences will, will be different. And if how we use the evidences is different, then the natija, the outcome of the opinion is going to be what? It's going to be different. So that's expected, ishtiharat. So when the Prophet ﷺ told the Sahaba, pray Asr at Bani Quraidah in Sahih al-Bukhari, and a group of them said, it was late, Maghrib started, a group of them said, listen, Maghrib's coming in. So the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't know that we're going to be late. So they're not going by the letter of the law. They're going by what? The intent of the order. The others are like, no, 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 man. We're not going to pray Asr till we get there. So we see like that type of uh, construction of the understanding of Islamic law early on. But neither of them started fighting, and you're an innovator, and you're this, and you're that, blah, 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 making mixtapes about each other and stuff on Hot 95 or 97 or whatever it is, you know, on the Breakfast Club, attacking somebody. That didn't happen. As one of my teachers used to say to me, you know, to be a good Muslim means you have to have good character. Like, just you have to have good character. You have to be a mature person. Like if you wanted to look at Islam as like a sports, y'all are like LeBron James. 
Like you got the last prophet, right? You're like the best in the sense of that's the final prophet. We've received the finality of prophethood. That's a very refined, distilled message that demands we play our, we bring our A game to the spiritual setting. It's not for slouches, man. It's not for people that are impatient or not nuanced or not loving or not invested or don't care, or don't think, or impulsive. No. So subhanAllah, we see here the Prophet, when they came to him and they said, like, we prayed and we didn't pray, he didn't say this is wrong and this is wrong. Or this is right and this is right. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What would he say now? That doesn't mean that we don't have orthodoxy. Yeah, we have orthodoxy. But we're, not, we're talking about here the areas where people are differing and differences are allowed. So number one is they follow the opinion of like legitimate, a legitimate resource, right? We'll talk about legitimate resources in Usul al-Fiqh, Masjid Taqwa, inshallah, every other week. Number two is that it's not based on ishtihad, like it's not based on the attempt to understand the meaning of a text or the absence of a text. Bid'ah means what? When there is no text or there is no support. But ishtihad happens when there's no text within the parameters of when that's allowed or when there's a text and we differ on the meaning of the text or there's a text and that's the third principle. If someone acts on a weak hadith, we don't say that's bid'ah because it's something there. Maybe the scholars that they follow they consider that narration authentic. Like reading Yasin on someone who passed away. Or going to the grave on Eid and reading Yasin. Don't say that person's mubtadir. The fourth is that we don't say someone is an innovator based on suspicion or unclear things. It has to be like really clear. It's not like, you know, I saw that brother on the A train and like, I don't know, man, he, he was making mistakes and reading the Quran, so I think he's, you know, an innovator. And that's why I believe like for these kind of things, it's better if there's councils of scholars and communities that come together. So it's too much, there's too much like personal animus to trust one person who's like criticizing someone. Right? But if there's a group of people, then that, like, So the Shaykh, he says, So quickly, we said the idea of bid'ah from bada'a, something that has no precedent. We said within religious acts, within religious acts, we said there are two schools historically. And there's one more point there's no bid'ah in the permissible and customs usually. Because bid'ah can only happen in what? Acts of worship. So like, you know, maybe someone says like, why do Iranians eat pomegranates? This is bid'ah. That's not the area of bid'ah, man. Why are people like at care, like, you know, organizing and like going and talking to representatives? Like, this is bid'ah. That's not bid'ah, man. Why do, you, why do you dress this way and you don't dress this way? This is a bid'ah. It's not bid'ah. That's a'raf. Well, a'raf aslaha ibaha. We'll talk about it in usul al-fiqh, right? The permissible, the general rule is they're not related specifically to worship. Which is how people live their life. So when like someone says like, you know, um, they may go to a masjid and they may have chairs for the old people in the front. This is bid'ah. That's not bid'ah. That's orfan. That's like their custom. And the Hanafis, mashallah, man, they have a large, beautiful set of literature on the role of orf, custom. That's why Sayyidina Umar, when he went to Damascus and he found the Sahaba who had moved to Damascus, they were dressed like really nicely. Al-Qarafi mentions this in his book. And then he saw them, they were dressed really nicely. And they became shy because they knew like, yo, we went through it together. We were in Mecca and Medina and now we got paid and it's like kind of embarrassing, right? But Sayyidina Omar is still what? Like the old Omar. 
just wearing simple clothes. So he realized that they think like, I'm upset with them. But look at his wisdom. That's why Al-Qarafi, under the chapter, it's called Custom is not Bidah. So Omar, he said to them, I know you know I don't like this. Because that's how he rolls. But I actually don't have an opinion because you know your people better than me. You understand how the people here operate. I don't understand that. So I can't like, there's no inkar, there's no rebuke, there's no harshness. She's like, whatever works for you, alhamdulillah, you know your people better than me. So the last is we have to be very careful that we don't expand innovation to like people's customs, how people dress, you wear a shawar kameez, you wear a thobe, wear pants and shirt, like nobody cares, man. Yeah. So hadith related to praying Asr, like the, what the Prophet said, Spirit of Allah is just the text. Do we just not know what the Prophet said in response? We know. When they went to them, he didn't correct either or. He just remained silent. Yeah, he just was like, mashallah. Didn't say anything. And we know that silence is what? In usul, approval. Because it's not possible for the Prophet to see something wrong and not say anything about it. As we'll, we'll talk about Kitman here in, in, our, in our books in Aqidah and Theology. Like we believe the Prophets didn't hide things. Yes, sir? Can I ask, I guess on a day-to-day level, where people are concerned that I should speak up about something, but then you don't know, like there's a difference of opinion on it. There's like a lot of differences of opinion. Should the default state be not inclined to correct people because there might be a default, like a difference of opinion on this thing? That's a good question. So. If there's like differences out there and so like should I correct something first of all before I'm apt to like correct or not correct I should be apt to learn so that I know the degree of what I'm correcting so I think I told you the story you heard all the stories mashallah when Al-Qadi Abu Bakr he went to pray in Masjid Al-Aqsa so he was a student of Ghazali, so this is like the 6th century, so a long time ago. Ghazali is from Iran, mashallah. He, he said, I pray Asr, and there were these two guys next to me. So after Salah, the guy on my right side, he said, Ya Shaykh, did you see the guy on your other side? He prayed wrong. He was doing this with his finger. And then the guy on the other side of the sheikh, he said, Sheikh, that guy on your right prayed wrong. He didn't do this with his finger. Then he said, like, how did you see each other? <laughs> and then one of them said, who's right? And he said, Ana kuntu mashghulun billah. In salah, like, I was busy with Allah. But both of those opinions actually are valid. So one of the rules of engaging people on issues, number one, if there's like an imam or religious leadership in the masjid, like let them handle it. I, and in Boston, I would have problems with people who would like just on their own experiences would like, especially with, with, with how people prayed, they would like try to move them together. They would bring them back and push them forward. And people would be startled because like you're praying and suddenly someone's physically moving you. And then I, I talked to this lady and I said to her, like, what's the job of the imam? Like, what's the purpose of like, this is what people's job is. So number one is like, defer to people, that's what they do. So hey, I'm not sure. Like when Abu Bakr ran into Hudhaifa and Hudhaifa was said, Sara Hudhaifa munafiqan, Hudhaifa has become a hypocrite. And then, the, then say to Abu Bakr, uh, he said, what happened to you? He said, I became hypocrite. You know, when I'm with the Prophet, my iman is so high and I go home and my iman drops. What did Abu Bakr say? Let's go to the Prophet. Even though Abu Bakr probably he knows the answer. So one of the things that we don't talk about, the Sahaba are good congregants. That's when the time of Sayyidina Ali, somebody came to him and said, man, in the time of Omar, everything was good. Now you became the leader. Look at this wash stuff. Why? He said, because I was the follower of Omar and you're my follower. 
Like, I knew how to, like, work within a community. So I think it's, I don't think, like, if I'm not trained, I should be very careful about just correcting people that I don't even know. Like, when I first became Muslim and people were like, brother, why do you dress like that? I was like, what's my mama's name? Like, what do you mean? You don't even know my mom's name, but you're going to come and talk to me about my clothes? Like, this is crazy. No offense. Like, I don't even know you, dude. Like, for me, that was really strange. I was probably arrogant as well. I was young, but like, this guy is talking to me about my clothes. I don't even know his name. And his fashion sense is off. Right? But I'm saying like, why not build a relationship with a person and get to know them? Hey, let's go out. Let's hang out. Let's talk. Let's spend time together. Let me build with you. And then like, that will probably open up a more sincere opportunity for discussion. But religious police that aren't trained, man, that's a problem in community. Because like, think about it. Like the imam, like imagine Imam Khalid here. Like he knows all of us, most of us. Like he knows our families. He knows things that we're going through. So like if he ad advises me, I know that's from an informed place. For me to walk into a community where I don't really know people and then start to like give them advice without knowing their, the, the baggage that's coming into the community. So that's one of the conditions actually of that is that you have to know that what you call to won't create a greater harm. It's like pushing people away from the community. So I would say like before I'm apt to think about strategically negotiating like rights and wrongs, it's like, do I know if this issue is open? Because everything's not open for debate also. And then secondly, like, do I know the person? Like, am I, I have that kind of relationship? Khalas. That takes us to the next uh, part of the text, inshallah, after the introduction and after he talks about sending peace and blessings upon Sayyidina Muhammad. And we mentioned numerous ahadith as well as this beautiful poem written by Abu Sayyidi. It doesn't have to be quick. That's true. Yeah, what makes Qari Abu Bakr hilarious is he has his own memoirs. Yeah, some of them are, are uh, I can't repeat here, actually. Uh, he has some very interesting experiences. Yeah, he, he met a man who married a woman who was a Siamese twin. She had two heads, yeah. So he describes having dinner. With this family. <laughs> it's like really funny, man. It's like very strange. And he's like, I was sitting there and eating and, you know, there wasn't electricity. It's like really dark. And then he said, I realized, she had two heads. And then he was like, I didn't know how to give salam. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And then he said, as a Maliki, I said to the guy, you know, this is not acceptable because you married two sisters. So then the guy got angry at him. <laughs> so his memoirs are like really funny, man. So he, he just kind of writes like, how the heck did they not see, like, how did they see each other, first of all? And then that's a good point. Like if I was praying, I know as a convert, like my first two years of praying was basically looking this way because I didn't know how to pray. There was no YouTube back then on how to pray. So it was like watching uncles, you know? So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, his memoirs. It's there. Yeah. Yes, It's really important, yeah. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I've been there. So, so I think one of the things, like even here, we try to do is offer that support to people. So you can reach out to me. We try to help you. 
I think also when we're looking for mentorship, there's a difference between being in an, a cult and like having mentorship. I, I think mentorship is good in all as aspects of my life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's important that like I'm not being uh, intimidated or I'm being completely muted or I'm being told to question my own common sense or I'm being distant from my family or those who love me. Like that's not mentorship. Now that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Mentorship is like tech support. Like today, uh, I saw someone talking to someone here about a decision that they had to make in their life. And then that person said, you know, I don't have complete, I don't want to say it because it's private, but like, I don't have complete experience on this, but one time this happened and this is what I did and it worked for me. So maybe here's some things you can do. And then he or she was like, oh, okay. And then he, he was like, well, follow up with me. Those kind of situations, or like when someone comes and says, like, what translation of Quran should I read? Like, I can give them, I think, an informed answer, mm -hmm. right? When someone's asking, like, hey, should I, you know, leave America and end up in the middle of nowhere and, like, dedicate myself to the cause? Like, I don't think that's a good idea, right? That's that relationship, you know? But not where it's, like, overcoming someone's, like, ultimately, people have to make their own decisions. So I think it's important to reach out, you know, and, and we try to facilitate that, inshallah. I think eventually here we're going to start actually a mentor program for just like the convert community in general. Because we have a lot of people that have converted. So it's like, that's a tough one, man. Family, job, school, kids. And you're trying to like balance being Muslim. And then also for younger students, like we have a large number of professionals like in the community that they're doing what they want to do. So, like, we should tap into that as a mentorship opportunity. So, yeah. Uh, we'll start now, inshallah, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on something really cool on line five. And now he begins the actual text. And the first kind of theme is the idea of faith and reason. Like, we talked about what faith is. We said faith in Islam comes from a word which means to be secure. Amen. The Prophet's name is Amin. He's someone, like, you can trust. So, faith is about a trust. And we talked about how do we acquire that is number one, learning and experiencing life. We'll get to that in a second. People tend to think, if you think about it, it's very immature, it's very myopic. Like, you know, I'm going to go learn faith in a mosque so I can live that outside. Well, there's no church in the wild, man. You know, like, maybe you got to combine those two to really have a broader understanding of faith. Because, like, it's easy to be pious in the mosque, man. But the drama usually is outside. So I need to be trained within the realm of the drama too. So that's why the prophets, they mix with people, they engage people, they live with people. They're constantly surrounded by people. So that that faith is like robust. I, I worry. I talk to Islamic schools and I understand I'm a parent. I talk to Islamic schools and they say, you know, um, we're going to incubate these kids. Are you going to incubate them or prepare them? Because like those are two very different strategies. Incubation has its, its value. No doubt there's certain things I don't want my kids around. But at the same time, like I want them to be prepared for life, for reality. So the sheikh is going to talk about the idea of faith and reason. And, and, and how does Islam look at the intellect and reason? So he says, وَبَعْد, which means like to proceed fa'lam, you should know, like you should understand, you should be aware. بِوُجُوبِ الْمَعْرِفَةِ You should know. And here he talks about the primary obligation, like the first obligation for a seeker, for someone on the path in Islamic theology held by the majority of great theologians, the first obligation is to think that's really important man in the face of islamophobia in the face of i think it was bill maher it's like islam is like anti-reasoning um a few of those other guys like richard dawkins were saying like islam is a mother load of bad ideas islam is anti-rational of course we have certain limits on rational thinking but 
the first obligation before faith, before practice, before salah, before fasting, before making pilgrimage, is to think and to learn. That's why the word knowledge is the most used word in the Quran. And the Prophet was not asked or commanded to ask for an increase in anything except knowledge. Ilma, my Lord, increase me in knowledge. And that's why, subhanAllah, theology, at least the theological school that you're studying now, what's the name for this school, if anyone knows? They're Ahlu what? Oh, inshallah, Ahlu Sunnah. But this is like a specific group within Ahlu Sunnah. What were they called? Ahlu al Kalam. What does Kalam mean? To talk. So subhanAllah, our theology is the science of talking. That's really cool, man. It's not Ahlu Sukut. Ahlu Darb, yani. The people who get hit, or the people who ask too many questions, is Ahlu Kalam. So, and that's why studying the tradition is important. Tradition, tradition especially after a post-colonial hangover, that still seems to be there. It's rough, man. It's important to find inspiration in the tradition to redefine some of the nonsense that we've experienced through a post-colonial experience within and outside of the community. So you could be like, man, our, our theology is a theology of talking, bro. And the first obligation in this theology, in this construction of theology in the Muslim community is to what? Is to think. So now if you're at an interfaith event, or now you're at an MSA event, or now you're at like some kind of Christmas party for your corporation or whatever. And they're like, yeah, okay, Mo, tell us about those Mohammedans, all that backward religious nonsense. You know, you guys are like mother load of bad ideas. Before you call HR, you can say, and your lawyer, you can say, man, this is Ahlul Kalam. And the first obligation of this group of people who talked, and the reason they called it Ahlul Kalam is they said people talk a lot about God is to think and to use your mind. So the Sheikh, before he talks about God and theology and anything, he says the first obligation, you got to know that the first obligation, the primary obligation is to think. We evaluate some of our Islamic schools. Are they inspiring people to think? Some of our teachers, are they inspiring are we inspiring people to use their intellect and to engage and question? All right, we don't agree. Okay, so what? End of the world, man. Yes, sir. I think, so you just mentioned that, that the majority of scholars said this is the first obligation. Just, it made me think, to what extent does it matter whether it's a majority or a minority? It's important, man, because you're able to say that's a lot of people that came to that conclusion. But isn't that like a quantity versus quality assessment? Well, we would hope because of the methodology that the quality and the quantity go together. Especially, and we, maybe we can study this in the future, the history of theology. Like we're not talking about some haphazard process. Very, you can think of like constant peer review that happened for years. But again, these are constructions, right? Doesn't mean we can't adapt and you know, think about how we have to speak theology. Theology is the attempt to speak in God's voice. We can't do that. We believe that's impossible. So these are mere attempts, right? But it's important to hold on to components of orthodoxy or we get into like, we have nothing left. So he says, فَعْلًا بِوُجُوبِ الْمَعْرِفَةِ مِنْ وَاجِبِ لِلَّهِ عِشْرُونَ صِفَةِ he said, the first thing after thinking and knowing is that there are 20 things that we believe you have to know about God. There's, there's a lot of stuff happening here. Number one is he said ma'rifa. He didn't say ilm. He said the obligation of ma'rifa. We translate it as knowledge, but ma'rifa is more than knowledge. In Arabic, knowledge is ilm. Ilm is the acquisition of rules. But ma'rifa is something bigger, like we call the, the horse, the, the tail of a horse, arful faris. Because the tail 
is an indication of the horse existence, right? We say something that smells nice is arf, arfo nasher. Because that smell ultimately directs me to the existence or something of something or its absence. So the ma'rifah of Allah now means I've employed my senses, I've employed my life to come to a conclusion that Allah exists. We're going to unpack that more next time because scholars divided it into three. It's very interesting. And then he says, from that are 20 things you should know about God. The word he uses is sifa. The word sifa means like, he translates like attribute, like I'm tall. That's sifat. My sifat is like tawil. So a sifa, ma tudraku bil is something that human beings can comprehend and understand through reflection. So packed into this small line is that anyone can have a relationship with Allah. They might have different levels of comprehension and reflection and thinking, but these are 20 things that people can understand. And we talked about this last year. This, this group of scholars, when they introduced God, they didn't go through like all the text and hadith and verses of Quran. They didn't go through like, does God really have 99 names? Doesn't have 99 names? Blah, 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 right? All these kind of theological discussions. They just simplified it. They zip filed it all into one thing and said, no 20 things. Why'd they do that? And why was that like really the systematic way of learning theology? This is how most people started up until a while back. Why, man? And these 20 things that they're going to talk about are like universal. They're very broad. They're not specific to us. They're so broad that, you know, other religions on certain, of the, certain qualities would like agree. They were like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Why would they do that? From like an educational theory perspective. Yes, sir. Right, so you give people like, it's kind of like the idea of a mentorship, like I'm gonna teach people slowly so they can graduate into something, right? So there's a foundation building component. Yes? I was gonna say like, because their foundation is thought and, and knowledge, it's good to critically think of the, like sometimes it can seem overwhelming, but because right. they made it as simple as they could, I have a friend, he's trying to do the keto diet. I don't know who he is. <laughs> so he's telling me, you know what I hate about the keto diet? I was like, what? He's like, the recipes are like too freaking complicated, man. Because it's like these people are really trying to advertise like keto's fun. Just eat fat all the time, right? So he's like, man, I don't make freaking almond bread, dude. It's like buy some bread from the Ammu. Right? Like, I don't want, like, you know, almond-crusted Twinkies and, like, filled with, like, you know, I don't know, non-carbohydrated, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I was like, what did you do? He's like, man, I just ate cheese and diet soda for, like, 60 days. It's <laughs> 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 insanity, right? He got ripped, though, mashallah. He doesn't feel good. He doesn't feel good, but mashallah, he did a great job. But the point is, it's too complicated for him, so it's not sustainable. So, like, it's important, like, when I was in education, they used to say to us, always start your exams with the easiest questions. So, like, people can build confidence in themselves. <coughs> and people aren't intimidated. And then you, and also they cover the basics. I don't want people worrying about other stuff and not aware of the foundations. So it keeps people focused on the foundation. Third, we talked about this last year. Who was listening that this school was largely constructed, engaged in what kind of society? No, no, no. I meant from the point of like religions. So these Muslims in Iraq in the second century after migration and in after Hijri. 
were Muslims the majority in those countries or still a minority? There is still a minority. So you can't just talk to your own people. So if you're going to craft a public theology, you better craft it in a language that can be kind of absorbed by as many people as possible, but stays true to the message. So you see like there's wisdom in the curriculum here. There's like a thought, there's a process. And the Muslims who live in those societies, you want to make sure that they're as literate as they can be in a basic way as they engage, because they're going to run into their own doubts and issues by the nature of just being geographically placed in these places. So he says, I remember once in Egypt, I love Egypt, this is a bad story, Egyptians don't get angry, it's the only bad story I've ever told. All the other stories have been, alhamdulillah, singa ta'ashara. So I went to this Friday sermon in Egypt and I was just, I was new to Egypt. So my Arabic was still kind of like not there. And I remember the guy starts to give the Friday sermon and he's like, today we're going to talk about the 99 names of God. I was like, man, this is going to be a long khutbah. Like all 99 names, man. It's like part one. It's like, no, we're not all 99. We're going to knock them all out. I was like, Oh Lord. And then as he starts, he gets like in his introduction, suddenly he puts on the brakes and he's like, but there's five things you need to know about these names. He's number one, this hadith is weak, this hadith is weak, this hadith is weak, this hadith is weak, this hadith is weak. And that one that you put on the rug, that's weak too. Like, you know, the famous Asma al-Husna on the rug and the gold. He's like, it's not weak, by the way. But he's like, that's weak too. So he started going into all this like hyper hardcore stuff. I'm like, I still don't know one of the names, man. Like, we're, we're lost. We took an exit. We're at the rest area, and we're not getting back on the highway. And then I started looking at people in the mosque, and they were just like, I don't understand. <laughs> right? So it went from the 90 names of God to what? Like, this is hard and cumbersome. There's a place for that. Like, we need to have sophistication, and there needs to be that level of discourse. But, like, now with the Ammus and the Chachis and stuff, man. And not with just those of us, I'm just like, I just, man, I just want to survive corporate America, dude. Like, I'm just trying to keep, I'm trying to make things at home work, bro. I just want to have a relationship with God. I live in Trump's America. No, like, seriously. So their approach was in these introductory texts to create what's called tesis, foundations. And then from there, they would start to unpack issues. So like this text... The next text after this unpacks more issues, unpacks more issues. So next, uh, next time, inshallah, we're going to talk about the idea of knowledge and God. How do we know God? What do we believe about God? And then those 20 principles will start to unpack them. And any questions, inshallah, before we hit our hour, our deadline?